there are some physicists who are attracted to this idea and some think it's, you know, hogwash. Nobel Prize winner Steven Weinberg, a very respected scientist, said that the multiverse is the only way to go. I'm Isha Da Vinci. This is the Griff Podcast, conversations to get you ready for the future. Joining me on this episode is Paul Halpern. Paul is an American author and professor of physics at St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia. He has a PhD in theoretical physics, an MA in physics, and a BA in physics and mathematics. He was the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship, Fulbright Scholarship, and an Athenium Society Literary Award. He has published numerous research articles in the fields of general relativity, cosmology, chaos theory, and complexity. Paul is the author of 18 books on subjects ranging from the history of particle physics to the nature of time. His books have been widely reviewed in Publishers Weekly, Nature, Scientific American, Sky and Telescope, New Scientist, and other leading publications. He has appeared on many television and radio shows, including the PBS series Future Quest and the national public radio show Science Friday. This is a wild and crazy conversation. We go from Paul's writing process to what exactly is the multiverse. We touch on Oppenheimer, Einstein, and Niels Bohr. We discuss dark matter and the even more mysterious dark energy, how quantum states link humans and things, and we dive into Hilbert space and much, much more. The whole thing is a bit mind-blowing and a lot of fun. I promise you'll enjoy it. So let's dive in, learn about the multiverse, and get ready for the future. Paul, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me on your show. It's a real pleasure. You are a prolific writer. Over the last 30 years, you've written... 17 and now 18, the 18th, popular science books. And I have to just go through them for our audience because this is wild. Time Journeys, A Search for Cosmic Destiny and Meaning, 1990. Cosmic Wormholes, The Search for Interstellar Shortcuts, 1992. The Cyclical Serpent, Prospects for an Ever-Repeating Universe, 1995. The Structure of the Universe, 1996. The Quest for Alien Planets Exploring Worlds Outside the Solar System, 1997. Countdown to Apocalypse, Asteroids, Tidal Waves, and the End of the World, 1998. The Pursuit of Destiny, A History of Prediction, 2000. Faraway Worlds, Planets Beyond Our Solar System, 2004. The Great Beyond, Higher Dimensions, Parallel Universes, and the Extraordinary Search for a Theory of Everything, 2004. Brave New Universe, Illuminating the Dark Secrets of the Cosmos, with Paul Wesson in 2006. What's Science Ever Done for Us? What the Simpsons Can Teach Us About Physics, Robots, Life, and the Universe, 2007. Collider, The Search for the World's Smallest Particles, 2009. Edge of the Universe, A Voyage to the Cosmic Horizon and Beyond, 2012. Einstein's Dice and Schrodinger's Cat, How Two Great Minds Battled Quantum Randomness to Create a Unified Theory of Physics. 2015. The Quantum Labyrinth, How Richard Feynman and John Wheeler Revolutionized Time and Reality, 2017. Synchronicity, The Epic Quest to Understand the Quantum Nature of Cause and Effect, 2020. Flashes of Creation, George Gamow, Fred Hoyle, and The Great Big Bang Debate, 2021. And now in 2024, The Allure of the Multiverse, Extra Dimensions, Other Worlds, and Parallel Universes. (sighs) I'm just, I'm just going to die just reading the list. It's incredible. Okay, so we're going to get into the multiverse. But before we get into the book and all of those concepts and all of that exciting stuff, how did you get here? Like, 
what what brought you to this point? Uh, or even to begin writing all of this incredible body of work? Well, uh, from childhood, I've been very interested in science fiction and the idea of other universes, other worlds, and you know, other possibilities, you know, in our world. I read people like Isaac Asimov, Ray Bradbury, and so forth. I was a big fan. And then I was also, uh, I found my one of my best subjects was mathematics. So by the time I went to university, I became interested in studying physics uh, with the hope of connecting physics with culture. And while I was an undergraduate, I Asked, I took a course of the, in the physics of science fiction, and I asked the professor, um, what could I do to make something like this my career, like looking at c- connections between science and culture, because I thought that was a fascinating area. And the professor said, well, first, get a hard science degree in physics or otherwise, do some research, and then maybe later in your career, you can explore interdisciplinary ideas such as physics and culture and so forth. And that's exactly what I ended up doing. I got a degree in general relativity, exploring, you know, strictly theoretical ideas about the universe, very mathematical. And I spent a few years delving into the mathematics of Einstein's theory. And then once I got my PhD, I felt a little burnt out with mathematics. And that's when I wrote my first book, Time Journeys, because I wanted to do something that was more literary rather than mathematical. So over the years, I've gone back and forth between more mathematical projects and more sort of literary popular works. And then I've also dabbled in history of science and cultural ideas of science. So published in a lot of different areas, a lot of different kinds of journals. You know, it's, I mean, it's fascinating I'm always curious as to why a person really becomes who they become, because I think in life you can take multiple journeys, you can go on multiple different paths, and it's always fascinating, especially when I'm talking with really smart, really learned people, to understand how they ended up becoming who they became. Um, so you were, you say, as a child, you were fascinated with science fiction and understanding these other worlds. Was there any particular moment or particular piece, film or book or idea that sort of got you, that really struck you as super interesting, like something that made you think differently about life? Because I think we, we're born into this world and then we sort of are confined by what our senses tell us. And most people are trapped by what our senses say. They can hear this, I can see this, I can feel this, I can do this. And, and we sort of... L- limit ourselves to that reality. And clearly you have done something different. Well, I think one turning point for me was reading a book by the great uh, physicist George Gamow, who uh, my previous book was partly about, uh, a a Ukrainian-born physicist who came to the United States and he wrote a lot of popular works. And one of his works was called One, Two, Three, Infinity, And that had uh, a lot of very wild stuff in it, including the idea of the fourth dimension, which, you know, as a, I think it was probably about, I was about 14, 13 or 14 when I read the book. And it just blew my mind, like the idea that 
you know, there will be other dimensions besides length, width, and height, and, you know, worlds out there. And that was one of the ideas that really fascinated me. Um, I think other ideas like time travel and uh, space travel also, you know, fascinated me. So I began to think about these things and, and I was astonished, you know, that some of these ideas are talked about by serious scientists, by physicists, and, you know, that drew me into the sciences. Hmm. Um, I'm not a physicist. I, I don't understand. I'm not, I don't, haven't really studied physics. I'm not even like a sophisticated layperson when it comes to, to physics. But I think that we are at a time when humans are so dissatisfied with where the world is and how life is, how civilization is unfolding and our humanities. Um, interaction with how our interactions amongst ourselves and with each other, how that's sort of playing out. And we, the younger generations are very, very upset with the sort of state of affairs with the, with the, with the with climate and what their future looks like. I think the idea that maybe there are other possibilities and other worlds to explore, real or imagined, just that possibility alone will open up our imagination to new possibilities and new possibilities allows for new eventualities. Yeah. So I like, I love the idea of this podcast getting ready for the future. And, and I think, you know, you're right that in, in getting ready for the future, trying to prepare ourselves, it is great to think about alternatives. Yes. And that is really the attraction of the cultural idea of the multiverse, not so much the scientific idea, but culturally, we see uh, the multiverse as, as an example of our passion as human beings to ask the question, what if? What if we had taken a different course in history? What if, you know, for example, if the South had won the Civil War or, you know, the Allies had lost World War II? Mm -hmm. These are things that are explored in science fiction, but also in our own lives. It's good to look back at all the, you know, uh, you know, decisions we make and think about what would happen if we had made a different decision. And perhaps it could be a source of pride if, if you've made good decisions in your life and you kind of say, you know, I really can handle this. Uh, you know, I've, you know, I've made good decisions in the past. So I expect that, you know, I'll continue to do that. And there's, of course, a certain amount of chance, certain amount of luck, good luck or bad luck. But sometimes it's good to probe how we make our decisions and the choices we make and why we do so. And it, it kind of gives us a window into our own minds. Absolutely. And also, I mean, if we made a choice in the past and it was rewarding or not, we can also we, we, we become aware that we can make a different choice now. We have... We don't have to continue in any particular direction. We're not locked into a particular reality. There may be other options. And I think you, uh, in your work, have really sort of brought that to the wider world and attempted to break down these concepts based in science mm -hmm. and physics and sort of bring it to humanity and say, hey, people, look at this. Look at this. I'm not a psychologist, but, you know, in my personal life, I believe that it's important to have 
not just a plan A, but a plan B, plan C, and so forth. Always have different backup options. And if you're applying for something, a job or, you know, or, or some opportunity, it's always good to think, well, if this doesn't work out, what are the other options, you know, and, and to come up with alternatives and to be very flexible in your life and, and very positive thinking. That's my personal philosophy, not so much, you yeah. know, that doesn't really have so much to do with physics, but that's, that's a good plan to have. And uh, I remember as a graduate student, you know, I was, I spent a few years immersed in mathematics. And at one point I just felt almost like uh, a calculational zombie because I was just doing calculations all the time <laughs> and didn't really have much of a life outside of that. Mm -hmm. And feeling a little bit lonely and isolated in my graduate program, it didn't really help that you know, it was a, a program that was on a very uh, an island uh, near New York, Long Island, which gets very cold and snowy and windy in the winter, so it can be feel kind of bleak. So I was kind of doing the soul searching, and then I thought, hey, you know, I've written some, you know, not particularly good but fun poetry. And uh, so I joined at that point a coffee house where I could present my poetry. And that gave me an outlet, a creative outlet that was very different than the mathematics. And that opened up my mind to say, hey, wait a minute. I'm not just someone who does calculations. I have other sides of my life. And that um, led eventually to me deciding to write my first book. Yeah. Um, Brilliant. Which I hope which I hope was a lot better than my poetry because <laughs> my poetry is just kind of okay. Yeah. Um, so, so that led me to kind of a second career as a writer. So, um, so that was kind of a fun uh, option and I'm glad that I made that choice in, in the realm of all possibilities. You, um, we're going to get into the book, multiverses and all of that, but you are prolific as a writer. How do you do it? I mean, that's yes. just insane. Unless I read, I'm like, oh my God, I would love to be able to do a, a micro amount of that. Well, people make choices in life. Mm. And um, I tend to be a, as a fairly focused individual. Um, sometimes I kind of bash myself a bit because I procrastinate a bit. But every, I think everybody always does some, some degree of procrastination. But then, I, you know, I won't, you know, spend you know, hours and hours binge watching something for fun. Uh, normally I did some binge watching for my book. I saw a lot of sh shows about the multiverse and I felt like, well, this is for work. So I felt like I could do the binge watching, but I don't, I don't watch a lot of television. I've, I've kind of in a way, a little bit of an austere life. Mm. Um, I don't, I'm not, on social media, except for Work. you know Twitter X to do stuff about history of science. So I've kind of made the decision to be, you know, very focused and uh, the things I do um, outside of science, you know, exercise and things like that, I'm very focused on too. So I just, I just kind of have developed kind of a, uh, uh, just in a natural way, a kind of life where I'm focused on certain things. Yeah. And everybody makes their own choices. Yeah. And I'm sure a lot of people would be very unhappy with the choices I made. They'd be like, what? Don't watch the Super Bowl? What, what's wrong with you? <laughs> but I don't, I don't really watch 
you know, just my preference. I don't really watch sports games. You know, I'm kind of like, uh, rather than watching sports, I'd rather do my own exercise or do something else. But other people are into, you know, watching television or, you know, streaming stuff and so forth. And it's just not my bag. I'm more into, you know, focusing on a few activities. So that's that's how I've been so prolific. So you've been, you're more of a producer rather than a consumer. You're like, I'm going to create something. I'm going to write rather than sit and watch someone else's something that they did. Um, let me, but you enjoy writing. Do you enjoy, when I mean, you're sitting writing, do you find that joyful and, and rewarding, well, the, the process itself? Well, well, I go into different phases with my writing. Mm. So um, the first phase for any project or any book involves a bit of self-doubt and I sit down and I'll write a paragraph. I do a lot of my writings in co writing in coffee shops, like cafes. So I'll sit down, get some coffee, and then I'll write some a paragraph and I'll be like, eh, that doesn't quite work. And then I'll, I'll just save it in case I need it later. Then start a new page and another paragraph to start off. And the first few days or even weeks, I might write just like a couple paragraphs And then I might get slightly frustrated by that, but you know, that's the way it is always. And then I go through some period where I'm a little bit more regularly writing, like maybe writing a, a page a day or something, but then I might get distracted or involved in other things. Like I, I teach classes, I do other things, committee work. And that, so that's my second mode. So it's, a little bit starting off with a little bit of a slow walking pace, then getting into a jog. And then when I realize my deadline is approaching, <laughs> suddenly I go into a kind of a panic mode and I go into a bit of a sprint. And that's, you know, believe it or not, where my most natural writing comes up because then I'm really a hundred percent focused on the writing because yeah. I'm, I'm a little bit panicking yeah. and that's where my brain, uh, gives me a lot of help because sometimes I'll wake up and I'll have like a few paragraphs in my head and I'll just desperately find a piece of paper to write them down because then at that point I'm so immersed in what I'm writing mm. that my brain is producing stuff uh, automatically and uh, that's kind of exciting but a little bit scary mm. uh, and uh, especially for family members If like it, the time when I'm doing the sprint mm. and I'm really immersed in my writing, I can be a little bit spacey. <laughs> so I'm kind of thinking about the 1920s or something like that. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, I'll take out the trash. And then I kind of put that out, you know, in the back of my mind. And then later I'm like, oh, what was I agreeing to do yes. again? <laughs> um, it, you're making me think of Einstein when he you know, got his great ideas when he would, he's deeply ruminating on something and then he goes to sleep and then boom, it sort of un downloads into his brain. I don't know. And then, and then you, you, you watched Oppenheimer. Yeah. Right. Because you gave yourself permission for that because that was research, right? Um, right? Right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Well, that wasn't, that I wasn't researching anything for that. Although I have to say, I was thinking about uh, writing an article about Oppenheimer mm. and, and his relationship with 
uh, John Wheeler. Mm. So I'm, I'm going to give a talk about that. So, so it was recent. Actually, yeah. So actually, yeah, it's always, I, I, I do see mindless things. You know, my wife and I saw the movie Barbie for New oh. Year's Eve, and I'm not sure if I was researching anything for that. I'm, I don't plan to write. But it, that was multiversical. About, about Mattel toys. Okay, well, it was kind of whimsical. So, yeah. and I thought I'd see the second part of the Barbenheimer, uh, Barbenheimer. Yeah. Uh, duo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but uh, yeah, I am, I am very focused, but mm. um, you know, occasionally I'll do, so, do something that's completely unrelated to, to my research. So in Oppenheimer, when he is um, those early parts where he, we see him really, you see a, a CGI sort of representation of what's going on in his brain what they were saying, this is what's going on in his brain. You see the collision of all of these energies and lights and patterns and movement. And it's, um, you know, I, I'm so you're telling us about your process for writing. And I'm thinking about these, you know, these great physicists and their process for coming up with, with their work, their ideas. And it's, it's the same thing. It's a total immersion, a surrendering to this new sort of, coming together of, 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 of thought that that's what's happening. So there's, it's a, it's human thought that's comes before the science or the science is triggering a human thought, a new possibility. And then you say, Oh, here's a scientific formulation for this new blah, blah, blah that I conceptualized in my dream or in my deep thought or whatever. Does that make sense? Yes. I, I remember my advisor the great Max Dresden, who was a Dutch physicist who I admired very much. And when he gave me my project on chaos in cosmology, chaotic dynamics in cosmology, mm. as a graduate student, he handed me a long paper. And it was, I remember it was toward the beginning of the summer. Mm. And, and, and he said, uh, here's a paper, you know, I know you're, he, he knew that I was doing some traveling during the summer. I, I traveled around Europe that summer. And he said, well, I want you, you don't have to seriously look at it, just dream about it for a while. And I always remember that dream about it. And I ended up not looking at it the whole summer, but then I looked at it again when I got back. Um, but there is, it is true that sometimes the brain, uh, if you're presented with a lot of information and then you go to sleep, you might wake up with a solution. And in my case, it's more like waking up with, some ideas for some paragraphs or an, an analogy. Um, Brilliant. You know, sometimes they're, they work, sometimes, uh, you know, they don't work, but, you know, I quickly write it down. I have all sorts of scrap paper. I usually end up not writing on the computer initially, but just finding like a piece of scrap paper, like a napkin or you know, something like that. Mm -hmm. And I write, write it down mm -hmm. and then just put it in my pocket. And then when I have a time transferred into, you know, onto my computer and, and write it down. Mm. I love it. Okay. So the multiverse, what is the multiverse or a multiverse? So what is, let's start at the very basic level. So um, the conceptual or, or cultural idea of a multiverse is very different from the scientific idea, as I point out in my book. So the cultural idea 
is examining the question of what if, looking at alternatives and looking at like what if a superhero was was different, grew up differently than he or she uh, was presented. So that's in the Marvel multiverse. Um, we look at different versions of Spider-Man. So the original Spider-Man was somebody named Peter Parker who um, got bit by a radioactive spider and acquired all these superpowers. Mm. And then the more recent one involves uh, Miles Morales, who also gets bit by a radioactive spider and grows up, but he grows up under very different circumstances and has kind of a different approach to being a Spider-Man and uh, the into, into the Spider-Verse and across the Spider-Verse movies convey that, you know, diff those differences in a, in a wonderful way okay. using uh, state of the art animation. Yeah. Now contrast that with the scientific idea. Yeah. So the scientific idea uh, is twofold. One has more to do with quantum physics and the other has to do with the, the large scale uh, of physics, the, the largest scale, which is the universe itself. Uh, in quantum physics, the main multiverse idea is called the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. And that was developed in the 1950s by a researcher who was a graduate student at the time named Hugh Everett III. And he was examining the question of what happens if you take a quantum measurement? And the traditional idea for taking a quantum measurement is that you have all these possibilities out there, all these different states, and that once you take a measurement, like a row of dominoes, they all collapse down to one pile, one possibility. Mm. And that was the idea advanced by the great quantum physicist Niels Bohr and the great mathematician John von Neumann. And they said, it's human observation that collapses the quantum state from an array of possibilities down to one possibility. And Hugh Everett said, hey, wait a minute. Why should people mm. be able to do that task? What's special about people? Mm. There should be something that's more natural. So instead of saying that there's this collapse, he said that all the possibilities exist eternally. They just evolve over time and that people are part of this network. They're linked intrinsically with uh, these quantum processes and they're all connected and that the quantum state of things and the quantum state of people are so linked that when there are multiple possibilities in the quantum world, there are also multiple states of consciousness that we have that uh, if we're taking a measurement, there are different versions of ourselves that branch out and see different results yeah. for that measurement. Okay. So what do you think about that? As a human being, being aware of this line of thought and study and but being human and still experiencing reality in the physical world what do you think about that is this is this from an intuitive level not from a scientific level but from an intuitive level does it make sense to you does this does this is can this be a, a reality that this is what's actually happening there are many quantum worlds and many quantum versions of ourselves and yeah what you just explained so beautifully well, the fact is that quantum physics itself is really weird. So if we were starting with a classical model mm. 
you know, the Newtonian model of saying, okay, you, you know, you pick something up and you, you do it with a certain force and you get a certain result and there's only one possibility, that would be one thing. But what Hugh Everett was starting with is this quantum idea of superposition, which means a blending of all these states. Mm -hmm. So in standard quantum physics, you have all these possibilities out there already. So you might have an endless array of options. So for example, take the particle an electron and you're measuring its position. Until you measure that position, the electron could be one centimeter to the right of a target, one centimeter to the left of a target, or anywhere in between. And all you know is the probability that you would get a certain result. So you're told what the most likely result is, but you have a blend of results until you take the measurement. Right. So that is really strange in and of itself. So that's my position. You're starting with something strange, and then you want to explain why in this strange labyrinth-like world of quantum physics, yeah. you end up with what we see, and that's one option. So the question is, is there a physical process that narrows down all the options to one, mm. or is it a mental process? Is it kind of an illusion that we're narrowing everything down to one, but re in reality, it's just that different versions of us see the different possibilities. So once I express that in that fashion, it's not as far-fetched. It's still weird, but quantum physics itself is weird to imagine this bifurcation into all these different, you know, parallel universes. So from what you're saying, and as a layperson, here's what it sounds like to me. We have a physical reality. We have a mental reality. We have multiple mental realities. We have different sort of, the idea of different dimensions of consciousness, or should I would, let's say awarenesses, because consciousness sort of brings in other things into play and people may get confused. But let's say there are different dimensions of awarenesses. So we have awareness at a physical level, which is very dense and crystallized in, in time and space. It's very specific, right? You can feel it, you can touch it, you can sense it. And it, it's here. And so from a physical point of view, all of these other realities sound weird because we, they're not translatable in a physical way as we know it. But, but the idea that there are other worlds exist and other possibilities exist and that there's so much more to explore. So this whole quantum physics sort of bringing this awareness to us as humans that, wait a minute, we we're, there's so much more that we don't know here. We only know what we are seeing and we're exploring it from a very, um, we're testing physical things to come up with realities. Meanwhile, every great new thing came about because somebody said, excuse my language, fuck this physical thing that I think exists or the way that it is. I'm going to try it a totally different way and come up with a totally different idea. And then boom, later on it's proven completely correct. So maybe this whole weird world that all the stuff that you're talking about is for us humans, normal people, this is like, beckoning forward into new possibilities and we don't have to be limited by the sad, messy world that we live in, but Hey, look at this. At least that's where I'm yes. seeing. It's just like, Oh my God, we, we haven't even started. We're not doomed to disaster and to wars and to, you know, planetary annihilation by stupid capitalistic, you know, excesses. 
wait a minute, <laughs> people. There are other worlds to explore. Oh, my God. This is so exciting. That's what it feels like to me. I'm like, yes. Like, I think the five-year-old in all of us is going to say, yes, I knew it. I knew that adult evil world, that horrible adult world that I'm going to be trained and programmed and brainwashed into existing in with tiny little boxes that confine me to the somebody else's belief system. That's not really what's going on. That the multitude of possibilities exist. So now, Paul Halpern, expert and genius in this field, what hope can you give humanity now that you've studied all of this? What new possibilities have you found could potentially exist that us normal humans can get excited about? So uh, that you know, that's a really cool interpretation. So um, it, it's true that, and I'm not a neuroscientist, so this is a little bit outside my purview, mm. but it's true that the brain will focus on particular bits of sensory input and the things we focus on or perseverate on, you know, sometimes can be kind of a choice mm. and, um, you know, we choose what to give our attention to. Mm. And, uh, and I think sometimes that choice, uh, and, and to get in a little bit into, you know, politics and, and modern culture, mm. sometimes that choice is shaped by, you know, our experiences in our environment mm. and our perception, uh, you know, and once again, this is outside of physics, but our perception of other people, mm -hmm. other cultures and so forth is sometimes shaped by the environment we're in, but there might be other environments or other, you know, other situations where suddenly we realize that, wait a minute, you know, the, those ideas were very restricted mm. and may, and then suddenly our minds open up to other possibilities. And that's why on a, on a personal note, I really appreciate travel mm. and, you know, coming into contact with other experiences. And I've been lucky enough in my life to visit other cultures, to experience other cultures and living, you know, or residing in places, you know, for example, where they don't have electricity or running water and, and seeing what life is like there and giving myself, giving myself a, a different perspective on life, what's important in life. And, you know, I, I like to think of all, you know, other options. And that's why I, I think I appreciate diversity in people, diversity in experiences and so forth. And that, you know, doesn't have so much to do with physics, but just being, you know, an open-minded individual and, you know, encountering a lot of possibilities out there. And in physics, um, I guess it's, it's important to stay cognizant of the fact that, you know, as quantum physics tells us, objective reality cannot be measured all at once. That's the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. So if we say we want a completely objective picture of the whole universe, you know, down to every atom, down to every particle, and knowing all everything all at once, that's impossible. So that opens our minds to the idea that there are there are parts of the universe, 
which we don't have access to, we don't have knowledge of. And similarly, in cosmology, the radius of the observable universe is finite. Mm -hmm. There are regions beyond observability because of the speed of light that we don't have access to. And that brings up other ideas in the multiverse, that there are other bubble universes out there that maybe could possibly have collided with ours in in the early history of the Big Bang, which is one way of measuring them, but might be inaccessible today, today's detection. Are there parallel universes that exist alongside this one in another dimension of awareness? So that we don't have to physically leave planet Earth, but we can tap into it in some other way. Well, that would would be beyond beyond physical science. So, but but uh, conceptually, as a, someone exploring the space, what have you learned about the multiverse? Because when you say quantum, if we look at quantum physics, based on what you're saying, until we measure it with 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 until a human being measures the the thing, it it, it has a multiple multiple possibilities exist. Until we say, oh, it's this. It, many, many possibilities exist in, in, in other states. So it's in a state of affairs where many possibilities exist until we define it as this. And then, and then you said somebody else comes along, comes along and says, no, 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 all those other possibilities still exist in, in other places. Okay, but where are these other places? At what is the dimension where these things exist in reality? I mean, what is, is this, is this, in the, it's... Well, weirdly, weirdly enough, quantum physics imagines something called Hilbert space, mm. which is an abstract space of all the different possibilities ah. that are out there. Mm. Now, the question is, where is it? Where is it? <laughs> <laughs> and, and quantum physicists don't say it's it's an abstract space. So, um, But nonetheless, you can d- it exists. Yes, Hilbert space. Do you, and do you in th- my book, mm-hmm. my book, I use an analogy also developed by the great mathematician David Hilbert of a hotel with unlimited rooms. Mm-hmm. And it, with an infinite number of rooms, mm-hmm. and it, it always has a vacancy because even if all the rooms are full, you can always move people over, you know, because there's an infinite number of rooms and create more space. And that's the odd feature of Hilbert space. So, um, you know, it's it's possible that this is some connection with the mind, but yes. um, you but, know, yeah. uh, but you know, in our imaginations. We also, you know, ponder other possibilities out there, which is is more of a mental mental states rather than physical states. Right. So, as a scientist, you you know you can't just say things because then your credibility will be questioned. <laughs> but I can say things. I can say anything I want. And so it sounds to me like other other worlds exist. Mental worlds exist. Worlds exist where ideas, possibilities. Uh, other choices um, for humanity exist, and we can choose a whole array of possibilities that that are maybe quite superior to what we choose to physicalize in this world. So we've focused on we have an array of possibilities exist in this world, Hilbert's world, Hilbert's right, Hilbert's yeah. Oh, yeah. an array of possibility exists for humanity's future in Hilbert's world, and we can choose whichever one we pick. Uh, right now, we're picking the maybe not the worst because it probably could get a lot worse, but we're kind of we're making p- poor choices by focusing on outcomes that lead to all the kinds of things we look around and say we don't want to do. So we're looking around saying, I hate this. Why is this happening? Oh my God, the world is going to pause. Look at what we're doing to each other. And 
maybe we could choose another reality. Maybe if enough people decided to pick another choice from Hilbert's world and decide to manifest on the physical plane something better by focusing on that, we could have different options. I mean, if you think about it, Paul, the people who go out and build new companies, these startup founders who create new incredible possibilities, right? They're not focused on the old world that exists and fighting against the man's inhumanity to man. They're not focused on that. They're focused on saying, pulling down some idea, maybe from Hilbert's world or Plato's world of ideas. I, I would always use Plato's world of ideas, which I thought was brilliant. I said, okay, let's, let's go to this dimension of consciousness, the world of, of ideas where almost anything is possible that we can dream of. Really cool, incredible, immensely awesome things, things that actually give humanity hope and possibility and joy and fulfillment and excitement. And why not pull from there and then focus on creating that rather than focus on fighting the old and keep, all we do is when we fight the old, we, re we repeat the cycle. So, because we're focused on that. So we keep creating that based on physics. Sounds like, that's what it sounds like to me. So am I in the, in the realm of making sense or is this nonsense? Well, I think uh, psychologically what you said is really, is really valid that people can get stuck in a rut and sometimes, you know, something shakes them up in a good way. And then they say, wait a minute, you know, there are other possibilities in life. You know, I know people who at some point in their lives were locked into a job and they kind of said, hey, wait a minute. Do I want to do this the rest of my life? Right. And they switch, you know, switch careers and then are a lot happier that way. So it's always good to re-examine our options. I'm not sure if Hilbert, who was a mathematician, really talked about, you know, Hilbert space in terms of psychology, psychology uh, and, you know, he was kind of very abstract about it, this idea of, you know, uh, infinite number of dimensions and possibilities and that was used by physicists that way. But, uh, you know, other, some physicists like Wolfgang Pauli mm. uh, famously tried to apply physics to the mind and uh, in his collaboration with Carl Jung and tried to, uh, and this is, this is uh, talked about in one of my other books, Synchronicity, mm. that they were trying to find connections between quantum entanglement and uh, the idea of connections synchronous connections between people. So uh, some physicists do try to apply their ideas to psychology. Um, so I, I, I kind of see that sometimes the physics ideas is a good metaphor mm. for psychology, yeah. but I'm a firm believer that people should uh, look to the specialists and neuroscientists, psychologists, mm. and so forth for ideas about, about the mind and the brain. But there are some really good psychologists out there who emphasize positive thinking and that positive thinking can uncloud your perspective and make you, you see a brighter future ahead. Okay. We're not going to try and make you say something you don't, you, you know, you don't want to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the allure of the multiverse, why did you choose that title? Why allure? Like what, what, what are you going for? Well, I'm going for the idea of, you know, I tried to make the title a little bit ambiguous. Um, so um, I, I wanted to say that there's an attraction to this idea, but not saying whether or not it's necessarily valid because mm. I'm open-minded. 
there are some physicists who are attracted to this idea and some think it's, you know, hogwash, think it's mm. rubbish and mm-hmm. are like kind of like, how dare you talk about science fiction? <laughs> so I get that on social media. Sometimes I'll post even the title of my book mm. and I'll get a react, get a variety of reactions like, wow, that's so cool. I'd love to read about that versus like, that's just science fiction. It has nothing to do with science. And, and I'm thinking, well, Nobel Prize winner Steven Weinberg, who was a very respected scientist, said that the multiverse is the only way to go and wrote articles about that. And it's like, OK, if Nobel Prize winners yeah. give it some credibility, then at least we should consider it, at least think about it before rejecting it. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, it's I think I think it, it, it inspires a lot of strong emotions. Mm. And that's what I was going for with the title mm. of the book. Uh, like, you know, this is something that draws on a lot of emotions, both positive and negative. What do you want people to sort of learn from this book? What do you hope that the reader will, how will it change the reader in your, in your what's your hope? Well, there are a few messages that I want to convey with the book. One is that the cultural idea of the multiverse and the physics idea of a multiverse are very different. Like physicists are not saying like, oh, well, we're going to have a portal in which you can walk through and then suddenly you meet someone who's, you know, very similar to you, but is evil instead of good. I mean, that's science fiction. So I want to make sure people distinguish that from the science, which is about the quantum world and about cosmology, you know, the idea of bubble universes and so forth. So that's one point. The second point is that we need to at least consider the possibility that in order to complete the science of the observable universe, we may need to concede at some point Mm. in including some elements that are not directly observable. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, we can think of it as, you know, we have a science of the earth. So we, we have ideas about what's inside the earth Mm -hmm. and everybody agrees there's a core, there's a mantle and, and so forth, the crust of the earth. But we say, okay, has every inch of the center of the earth been mapped out? And the answer is no, Mm -hmm. there could be parts of the center of the earth. There could be parts of the ocean that haven't been mapped out. Um, And just like there's parts of space that aren't mapped out and there are, you know, entities in space that called dark matter and dark energy. I was, I was just we going to ask you about that. I wanted to ask you about, so let's, let's finish your thought. And then I want to talk, you talk about dark, dark energy, dark matter. Okay. Mm-hmm. So there are substances in space that we don't know what they are. So there might be enclaves of space beyond the observable that still play a role in our constructs of the universe. So I want people to at least be open-minded to consider those, op- those options. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I want you to tell us about dark matter in, in us after this, but I want people to, in listening to you and in getting your book and reading it, to have a, a more hopeful approach to the future. Like maybe there are opportunities that exist for us and maybe we're not doomed to destroy ourselves because there are new things that are yet to be uncovered that may provide solutions to the big questions and problems that we face. So anyway, so I want people to be hopeful. But um, okay, so dark matter, Paul. What's this dark matter? 
So dark matter is a kind of invisible, unseen glue that holds galaxies together and holds galaxies uh, together in the, in and of themselves, but also uh, combines them into clusters and so forth. So gravity explains why, for example, the Earth goes around the sun, the moon goes around Earth. But once you get up to the galactic scale, mm-hmm. gravity in and of itself does not explain why galaxies are stable. In fact, if you took all the visible mm. material in galaxies mm-hmm. and mapped it out, it doesn't provide enough matter to hold galaxies together. So a lot of people think that there is invisible material mm-hmm. in galaxies called dark matter that provides the missing glue to hold the galaxies together. And uh, but scientists don't know what it is. We're trying to Figure it out. test in particle colliders, mm-hmm. different hypotheses, trying to detect it through cosmic rays and uh, you know th- through other methods, trying to sense what dark matter is, trying to map it out. Do, do we know? So we know that you know in the solar system, the planets go around the sun and the the moons go around the planets, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then the sun goes, it has its own motion that's moving throughout the galaxy. So we know why and how these the planets are operating around the sun. And we know how the sun is operating within the galaxy, like the sun is has its own sun that it's circumnavigating. Well, no, the sun is traveling around the center of the galaxy. Mm. The center of the galaxy has a massive black hole. So that's a vortex of, 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 of energy or, or power that's, yeah, that's holding everything in place. Well, it, it supply, that supplies a lot of gravitational pull. pull. Mm-hmm. Plus, plus, there's a lot of massive stars in the core of the galaxy. Mm-hmm. But there's still not enough visible material mm-hmm. in the core of the galaxy to explain why the sun follows oh. its orbit. And, and especially the, the very outermost stars mm-hmm. really shouldn't be traveling so fast. But a great astronomer, Vera Rubin, mm-hmm. who many people think should have won the Nobel Prize, and that's a whole different issue. What, what year was that? About, uh, well, she, she discovered uh, these ideas in the 60s and 70s okay. and 80s. Okay. Vera Rubin mm-hmm. of uh, the Carnegie Institution of Washington. Okay. And uh, she came up with this model for how galaxies operate. And she said, there's a lot of missing stuff out there. Mm. And that became part of the theory of dark matter. And uh, a lot of people think she should have won the Nobel Prize. There are a number of women, particularly in science, who were well-deserving in the Nobel Prize who never received it. Yeah, we, we um, know that. Yeah. I, was for, I was fortunate enough to be involved in a committee mm. that gave her she has since passed away mm. that gave her an award for her work uh, close to the end of her life. So I was I was happy to play a role in the committee, the Historical Sites Committee, which com- which commemorated her work. But she should have won more accolades in her lifetime. But anyway, she was she, along with another physicist, Kent Ford, were the um, founders of this idea in the modern idea mm. of uh, of dark matter. Um, there was speculation about that earlier on by someone named Fritz Wittke, uh, but that wasn't really taken very seriously. Um, in contrast to dark matter, there's dark energy, which is a cosmic repulsion that's forcing 
galaxies to move faster and faster away from each other. It's accelerating the expansion of the universe. And scientists similarly don't know what that is. Wow. Wow. That, that's so fascinating. I mean, just sitting here talking with you, I find to be so mind-opening. Like it takes you out of the mundane, the minutia that traps us into, oh, I have to do this, I have to do that, oh my gosh, all these things, and into, wow, the awesomeness of the, the universes that exist. And planet Earth is just one tiny little spot on it. Like, come on, like, oh my goodness, like, so much is there to explore. Just thinking about it alone is transforming, I find. What do you... Yes, it's, it's very humbling mm -hmm. to think what about you... the, the size of the universe. I'm sorry. No, no. What, Go ahead. When you, in your work, you teach... What, you, what's your course? What are your courses called? What's your theoretical physics? What, what are you teaching? Cosmology? Well, I teach a whole range of subjects mm -hmm. at St. Joseph's University mm -hmm. from introductory physics to courses in astrophysics and cosmology okay. with a lot of range in between, plus cultural courses. Mm. Like last semester, I taught a course about the life of Einstein, which was very fun. So great. When, what do you want your students to learn from all of this work? Like, what's, what's your hope for them? Like, how do you want them to, what do you want to change about? Not necessarily change, but what do you want them to gather? And what value do you want them to take from this, this incredible work that you do. Well, thank you. Uh, there are a lot of messages. One is to keep an open mind. Uh, second message is to value and appreciate the scientific method of testing and retesting or verification, but to know that some things are not directly observable, but they might be indirectly observable. And uh, another lesson is that physicists are human they might be guided by prejudices and misconceptions and and other ideas. So I, I look a lot at the history of physics and various physicists, and sometimes they didn't have the full picture and they were misguided. Even Einstein uh, changed his mind a lot about mm. certain things. So physicists can change their minds and sometimes go off on the wrong path. So these are lessons that are important for everyone to learn. Mm -hmm. I love it. So in, in your opinion, what's the most exciting, uh, intriguing sort of development in your field? Like what are you looking at with, with not, not necessarily bated breath, but with a lot of in, uh, focus and attention? And what are you maybe watching to see unfold? Well, I'm very excited about the rise of what's called in our field, multi-messenger astronomy. Multi-messenger means getting information from a few different sources. And old-fashioned astronomy, the original old-fashioned astronomy in Galileo's day relied upon visible light. And then later that was switched to the whole electromagnetic spectrum, including picking up signals from radio waves, X-rays, gamma rays, infrared rays. Hmm. So the James Webb Space Telescope, for example, is picking up infrared radiation, but that's still all part of the electromagnetic spectrum, electricity and magnetism. But in recent years, scientists have been able to probe what are called gravitational waves, which are ripples in the fabric of space-time itself. 
And these are ways that space itself is causing waves. And, and we were able to detect these and they provide a glimpse into the hidden universe, the dark universe, beyond sometimes the reach of light itself. And that's extraordinarily exciting because it means we can reach farther back in time than when we have visible light and look at um, things that happen in the dark, uh, so to speak, things that we don't pick up visible signals from or even any kind of light signal, but we pick up gravitational ripples from. I was thinking about this recent Doctor Who episode where they were at the edge of of, of the known universe, so the rest of it was the the dark universe, the dark spaces beyond the the edge of light. So beyond there, there was no light ever went, and it was super fascinating. I mean, like, I mean, sci-fi has its merits. It does help us think about different things. We shouldn't take it literally, right? Um, okay, so are there? This is this is a little left field question, but it just popped in my brain. Are there other forms of life out there? What are your thoughts on that? I'm not holding you to anything. We're just we're just chatting. Well, I uh, I hope so. <laughs> I expect so, I fully expect so because you know, given the vastness of the cosmos and the number of planets out there, uh, it would seem very likely that there are other forms of life on other planets. But so far, we haven't detected uh, actual life outside of Earth. We've detected some of the ingredients, but not um, not actual life. Uh, so I'm hoping that, uh, that, you know, some point, hopefully in, in all of our lifetimes, there'll be some detection of extraterrestrial life and maybe even signals from extraterrestrial civilizations uh, would be very exciting. And what about Mars? What's your take on, you know, Mars building a, a, a you know, a livable spaces on Mars for humans and all that sort of, the, the, those endeavors? What, what's your take on that? And, and, and I'm not trying to be controversial or anything. I'm just curious, like, what do you think that's a useful endeavor, uh, something we should be doing, should be is it good or not good or you're not, are you agnostic? Well, I, I think Mars is a fascinating planet and I'm glad we've sent so many robotic missions to Mars. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's an open question, the value of a human mission to Mars. Mm. I personally would be very excited to see people land on Mars and uh, you know, you know, be exciting to imagine a Mars colony and, mm. uh, you know, but, you know, the conditions on Mars are very extreme, you know, an incredible amount of lethal radiation, potentially lethal radiation. So astronauts there would be need, need to be very well protected against it. We, they don't have the same thick atmosphere, relatively thick atmosphere that we have to keep out harmful radiation. So, um, but I'm very much in favor of space missions, including uh, human-occupied uh, space missions, but I know these things are very expensive. Uh, so I'd also like, you know, funds to be available to help, you know, alleviate poverty and hunger and things like that on Earth. So I see the purpose of b both things. Yeah, I, I think we can do both. I mean, you know, we can do both. Okay. Right. So, Paul, in every 
episode, I like to leave our listeners with sort of one thing to do or think about or consider some, something that they can take away and say, oh, I listened to that podcast. And, and they can drill down on one thing because people are, have busy lives. If you were to give our audience one thing to think about, do, take away from this, what would you, what would you suggest? Well, speaking as a person rather than as a physicist, I think the cultural idea of a multiverse involves looking at the question of what if and options in our lives. And I think as we address the future, try to consider possibilities in our lives, maybe not ones that immediately come to mind, but think about other activities, other hobbies, other places to visit. So looking at options and trying not to stay in a mental rut, but to, to be open to other possibilities, other cultures, other options in our lives. Love it. Is there anything else you would want to say? Just that uh, my book, The Allure of the Multiverse, is available at bookstores, online bookstores, physical bookstores, everywhere. And uh, I think it's it's math-free and very accessible. So I hope hope people enjoy it. I hope readers enjoy it. Yeah, it's the allure of the multiverse, extra dimensions, other worlds, and parallel universes. And and I think, you know, I think it could change people's lives to to sort of get into this kind of thinking, understand, start to understand physics, even from a layperson's point of view. And you do a beautiful job of that in all of your books. I've not read you before. I'm going to go and get your books and start reading because I think it could bring a whole new way of thinking to my understanding. And I think that's so valuable as humans and we can always learn more. So yeah, everybody should definitely go get the book um, and we'll have, I'll provide links to everything, to your socials and your site and your works and the book so that they can easily get it. Paul, this was so great. Thank you I, very much. It was a pleasure. I know I'm, when you get off, I'm going to be like, I should have asked him this. I should have asked him that. But You'll come back later on in the year and talk to us again. How's that? Yes. And, and I have to point out in other universes, all those the questions you thought you might ask in this interview were asked in the other interviews. <laughs> oh my God, that's brilliant. I love it so much. Make sure to listen, follow, and subscribe for new episodes wherever you get your podcasts and on our YouTube channel.